Hello everyone and welcome to Pull Quotes. This week we hosted a live event where we asked the question, is objectivity a sham? Well, the lines between activism and journalism is a hotly discussed topic among J-School students and among some practicing journalists. As journalists going through a program, you learn the nuts and bolts of this reporting process. You are graded on your ability to tell a story accurately and sometimes objectively. And we find this approach particularly interesting. Our guest on the show today is often presented as an example of someone who blurs the line between journalism and activism. And in our first RRJ event this season, we discuss what that really means. Desmond Cole is a freelance journalist whose work has appeared in The Walrus, Vice, Now Magazine, Torontoist, and Ethnic Isle, as well as Toronto Star. He won three National Magazine Awards in 2015 for his essay in Toronto Life, The Skin I'm In, which was later the basis of a CBC television documentary film, The Skin We're In, directed by Charles Officer. And he will be releasing his first book under the same name in January. Here are the highlights of our event in conversation with Desmond Cole. So I have called this little presentation Hiding Behind the Lens, and I wanted to start off with this to give you guys some context about what this conversation about activism, journalism, objectivity, fairness, myths about objectivity really, and storytelling. I want to give some context around all of that before we get more into it. I said hiding behind the lens because for me, that's what I think of when I think about objectivity. I think about the idea that a camera lens is not a person. It does not have feelings or preconceived notions of the world. It doesn't have an analysis. It's simply there to record. That's its function. But that we seem to want to pretend in journalism that we can be the lens, that we can actually come into our world and into our reporting without any preconceived notions or biases, that we can look at things in the world without judging, that we can somehow have a detached understanding or analysis of what we're looking at. And I think that it is not only impossible, but it is undesirable because we are human beings and because our journalism serves a purpose. The purpose of journalism is not to be a lens. It's not to, in some kind of detached or disinterested way, record, simply record what's going on. You can't observe something without altering it. The idea that you can observe or report without altering what it is that you're looking at or thinking about, this is what I really want to start with. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. We have to understand as journalists that we can't come into this tabula rasa with a blank slate. We are human beings. We don't come into anything with a blank slate and we don't want to. The second part is more important. Not just that we can't, but that we don't want to. Journalism has to be about something human. It is not simply a lens recording history. It has to be about justice in the best situation. And the truth will not set us free, but actions will. I learned this as a columnist for the Toronto Star because I was admonished and I wasn't fired technically. They simply made the work environment so poisonous and toxic that I didn't want to come back. 
But I was not technically fired. Now, you can understand that those two things aren't that different from one another. But the idea was not because of something I wrote that I got in trouble. It was actually because in my own spare time as a human being, as a freelancer, as somebody who had no tenure at the Toronto Star, no contract, no benefits, no salary, no union protection, that still in my spare time, I had to owe the Toronto Star some kind of conduct that they would find acceptable. I want to go back to that point that you made, the truth will not set you free, but actions will. And when you made the choice to leave the Toronto Star, how did you navigate that decision? I didn't want to go, but I saw no other way. A year before I left the Toronto Star, which was, I left in April of 2017. In April of 2016, I was called to have a meeting with one of the most powerful people at the company. When we met, he finally got to the point and told me that he felt that I was writing about race too often. I'd been writing for about eight months at that time. Then when I did that demonstration a year later, and they called me into their office and said, you've broken the rules of journalism, I was so angry. Because here you are trying to control what I'm writing for the newspaper, but then you're also trying to control what I'm doing in my own life when I'm not with the newspaper anymore. And it's too much. And I thought about it for like 24 hours, and then by 48 hours, I started writing the letter that I ended up putting up on my blog saying I gotta get out of here. Maybe the lesson is even a little bit of content from a black perspective that's resisting institutions, that's challenging institutions, still feels like too much for the mainstream. Nobody tires of that, presumably. Nobody tired of Don Cherry being a racist for 40 years on television. But my little column in this corner is too much. Like, I think that that says a lot about our industry. And I think it says a lot about our industry that this is not only my story. So I would really ask all these people who want to interrogate my work and my journalism so much, why don't they interrogate the whiteness that dominates 98% of the columnist industry in this country? Like, that's the real interesting thing to be talking about. Yeah. Not, not how controversial I may or may not be. Yeah. And actually, I want to bring that up. Um, here at Ryerson, there are two professors here um, in the Ryerson School of Journalism, Sonia Fatter, who's our instructor at the ROJ, um, and Asma Malik, who is our graduate program director. And they recently published a piece in the conversation highlighting some of the results that you've touched on, um, which looks at staff or columnists who published at, at least 40 times at three of Canada's largest publications, and that includes the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, and the National Post. And their findings show that over a period of 21 years, the demographic composition of columnists at these publications has shifted away from the Canadian demographic, which, as we know, the Canadian demographic has become less white, and the number of white columnists in these Canadian publications has actually increased significantly. And they cited you in their research. Um, you were likely captured in their data set as one of the few um, male black columnists during that period. And I'm wondering what you think um, of that columnist space and where it's headed. All these folks just kind of get their turn everywhere that they want in Canadian media. They just get to try the buffet, as it were, right? And um, 
I don't know. I, I, I know that trying to produce even one column a week was like hell sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's like a hamster wheel that you can't get off, and it's hard. And there's a lot of pressure. And I put a lot of energy into my one column a week, and then ultimately after it got cut, my one column every other week, I still tried really hard to make it interesting and relevant and representative of a point of view that I thought the newspaper was often lacking. Um, I didn't really have many throwaway columns, right? Mm. My work, I'm proud of it for what I did, but I wouldn't probably want to get back on that hamster wheel of columnist every week, two or three times a week, heaven forbid. Like, I don't even think that's healthy, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Like, and also, if you have that much column space, and we're talking about diversity, like, the fact that you can't cut the people who've been writing three times a week, but you can cut me writing twice a month, Mm -hmm. and that you can't give some of their column space to other people whose voices need to be heard in the industry, I think is really telling. A lot of us attended the climate march back in September. We did a piece in the ROJ examining how reporters um, on the scene covered the march, and many of them insisted on maintaining an objective perspective um, as they were covering it. And there's been a lot of conversation um, about the climate emergency and the importance of participating in actions to address this. Many of us believe that separating ourselves from this story is quite ridiculous, to be honest. What do you think? When we talk about something like climate justice and global warming, climate change, we have to first kind of come to a conclusion about whether or not we're dealing in fact or opinion. Because if it's just about having an opinion, yeah, sure. But I actually think that there's science behind what we're talking about here, which is undeniable at this point. So who are we protecting when we refuse to state not opinion, but the obvious conclusions of scientific exploration and work and study? Who are we benefiting? And I just want us to think about who it benefits to pretend that this is still some kind of open debate. It's just so politicized. And I think it's so obviously politicized that we're not going to have any real journalism if the people who are, for example, talking about climate science and climate change, who are those who are really interested in about it, by the way, if they can't speak to it from a sense of urgency that it requires. A lot of us, uh, when we're starting out covering different issues that we care about in journalism school, we go to protests, we report on them, and it's very much what happened, how it went, you know. Um, I'm wondering what advice you can give to students here um, about how to really properly report about what's going on at a protest and, and what it represents, what it means. Well, there's a couple of things. So. Because I reject the hard line that says you can't be the critic and the actor at the same time, I, I, I think that we actually do really need, for example, like editorials from people who are at the front of the climate justice struggle, particularly indigenous peoples in Canada. Like I think that they should be being hired to write why this is important for them. And that the reader in this objectivity myth is a really, really stupid, ignorant reader that can't think for themselves and can't learn. And I resent that. I resent that the reader can't hear from somebody who calls themselves an activist 
take in their point of view and consider it amongst other things that they're hearing. So first person identifying with issues and struggles, there's nothing wrong with that as long as we're being clear about who's speaking and where they're coming from. So I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I want to say that first. The next thing is, um, when I have done a lot of reporting, which I did before I got a column, and before anybody cared that I had an opinion, I did lots of reporting and just learning how the system worked. Some of the things that I learned from that discipline were talk to as many people as you can when you do this kind of reporting. Talk to people, ask people why they're doing the things that they're doing. Ask them why they do it with a sense of urgency and what is urgent about the situation for them. Arm yourself with enough information about what's happening that you can ask people intelligent questions on the fly. It's, it, it's about asking people the urgency, it's about asking people their own experience, and having enough background on the subject, reading enough from other places, doing enough of your own homework, that you can supplement that. Um, so we're gonna move on to questions from the audience. Um, so, first one. After reading your story and your journey in the media in Canada, as an immigrant black woman with the hope of being a journalist as a second career, do I have a future here where I have no voice? It's a good question. It's probably not a question that I can answer directly. Um, I've cobbled together the media career that I have. And, uh, you know, I'm blessed to say that it got people talking. You know, mm. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. But it's still very, very hard to make a living. It would be a dream of mine to be able to start my own little project in terms of media that was more cognizant of some of these challenges and that could give some young journalists, particularly black journalists, space to do their thing. But that won't be a Toronto Star or a National Post or a CBC. Like I, I it, would, it would be like me trying to start my own car company and competing with General Motors and Ford. It's not happening, right? The players in the industry who already exist are so few and so large that trying to start your own thing to compete with them is nearly impossible. So I've had to find the ways when I can be a journalist and when I can practice this and then the ways that I just have to like pay the bills and, and, and do my thing. I think other people can do that too in ways that work for them in um, if, they, if they have the drive and if they have the work ethic if they get a little bit lucky, like I did, if they relentlessly marketing themselves to whoever wrote that question, I'm telling you, like, hit me up after this is over, because I have a responsibility as a black person to like make sure that people like yourself have other spaces and platforms and amplification, so I will try to help in whatever way that I can. When it comes to topics, um, that affects certain communities, should they be the only ones to write about it? If the frame is that the conversation is about white supremacy and not blackness, we can very quickly see that that's a topic for everybody. 
What I think happens is that we as black people and other minority groups, sometimes I even feel like this about the column that I had at the Star. It's like this is the black section of the newspaper. So we have every other Thursday devoted to the black person voice. And then they can't say anything about us being discriminatory or uh, exclusive or racist. We gave you your column every other week, right? What, what more do you want? It's not about that, though. It's about the struggle for justice that is being dictated right now by white supremacy. So everybody can write about that. Not everybody can write about West African cuisine, and you don't have to. Not everybody needs to get inside of our communities and try to write the think piece or write the explainer. Not every, for example, black person who gets hired in Canadian media wants to write about those things either. The only people who I envy who get to write three times a week are sports writers. Y'all, do you know how badly I wish I could write about sports three times a week, like rafters? You're paying me to stay up and watch the Nate game on the West Coast? Like, that's the sweetest gig in the whole world. And do you notice how nobody ever says, can you believe that this sports commentator writes about sports three times a week? I wrote about race sometimes once a month. We don't all always want to write about ourselves and about this struggle that mostly white people are going to read and consume. I don't think that representation itself or a lack of it is the problem. Desmond, thank you so much. Thank you. Across journalism schools and legacy media, journalists are told to be careful about what they put out online. But as any journalist knows, Twitter conversations are built around voice and perspective. It's a place where journalists and the public engage in discussions around stories and framing strong voices. This has become part of the media discourse. So we wanted to focus on the use of Twitter and how we can use it and abuse it as journalists. Vicky Mochama is the host of the Safe Space podcast, and she is co-founder of Vocal Fry Studios. She's also a freelance journalist here in Toronto, whose work has appeared in Metro News Canada, Vice, Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, and The Walrus. She's joined us in studio today before our event with Desmond Cole to talk about their work as freelance journalists across multiple publications, but also the social media platform that they use as freelancers, Twitter. There's been an effort by legacy media publications to rein in their reporters on social media. In 2017, the New York Times updated their social media guidelines for journalists, saying, the new guidelines underscore our newsroom's appreciation for the important role social media now plays, but we also call for our journalists to take extra care to avoid expressing partisan opinions or editorializing on issues that the Times is covering. And this is reflected throughout different media organizations, namely legacy media organizations. So with that, I want to discuss with Desmond and Vicky. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Hello. A lot of student journalists are told they need to be careful with what they put on social media. And for both of you, Twitter is an archive of your ideas and the things that you enjoy have a discourse about. For example, Vicky, you retweeted the meme of the high school students sliding water bottles back and forth with the caption, Canadian newspapers exchanging the same white columnists over the last 20 years. Those types of memes are commentary on the Canadian journalism scene. When you are liking and retweeting, what filters, if any, do you have when you post? Or do you ever hesitate when posting content? Yes, I try to post and only really reshare stuff that I know to be 
true. So that was a joke made by a researcher who'd done a piece of reporting and researched the opinion he was now stating with this meme. So I knew it was true enough that I could share it and have fun with it. I maintain that Twitter is not my job, but it helps me, it facilitates my job. So it's a way that I connect with readers, but it's also a way that I find stories. So the filter I apply is, you know, it's just a place where I'm having a conversation, but it also contributes to how I do my job. Mm -hmm. And going off of that, you wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail called In This Election, What's a Black Voter to Do? Which was about how during this election period, issues affecting black voters were not debated and were kind of avoided. Your piece was really insightful, but it was published on the Saturday before Election Day and at a time when advanced voting increased by 29%. So do you think this was kind of too little too late? No, I don't think it's ever too little too late to discuss black political life. I don't mm-hmm. think it's, I don't think timing would have changed much of what I asserted. I don't know if that had come out a week earlier, the parties would still have been talking to or at black voters or even engaging with their ideas. So I would have been happy if it came out afterwards, because I think all of that still remained fundamentally true, especially because I'd spent about six months in conversation with that piece. And so I'd had, I'd had ample time to think about what that meant in terms of timing and realized that the argument that I was making that black people's political voices tend not to register or matter, especially at times like an election, I think having it go out the Saturday of the election only further proved that point because, you know, there was a lot of party members saying, oh, wow, what an interesting piece, but could not be followed up on on any particular policies or ideas that they had coming out of that piece. So even, you know, days before the election that they couldn't answer the basic premise of that question only really proved my thesis. And so it's always a question of timing. You know, we are in the news business, but often because I'm writing about issues of black people and racism, all of it kind of remains evergreen, unfortunately. Quite a bit of it does. What do you think about token coverage of issues? Do do you think this was perhaps part of that? Oh, I mean, possibly, you know, Mm -hmm. the... The Globe and Mail, for example, doesn't have a single black columnist. They have do very poorly, I think, on ensuring that there's representation in their newsrooms overall. So, you know, it's very possible. I think maybe the senior editor at the Globe's opinion team is a woman of color. There's another black person on their opinion team overall. So in a way, we're all kind of tokenized in that there's just no one else to do that job. And so... Yeah, of course it was part of it, but you know, for me, it doesn't limit my ability to speak on things having to do with black people. I just think that's the ecosystem I'm in. I didn't build it. Mm-hmm. And and actually, Desmond, your book is coming out in January, and it's titled "The Skin We're In." And you started this journey with the Toronto Life piece you wrote in 2015, The Skin I'm In. You focus on 2017 as the year for introspection for Canadians in this new book. By doing so, you're also making a case for the re-examination of Canadian identity. And given the 150 year mark and the month by month analysis of post-colonial structures and the system in Canada, how do you locate yourself in this narrative? I guess the way that I locate myself is as a witness. I say in the intro to my book that I could have picked any year to kind of chronicle month by month what's happening in black life in Canada because there's no shortage of, as Vicky's suggesting, like recurring evidence of the conditions of black life in Canada. It's always right out in front of us, right? So 2017 happened to be the year that I got my inspiration and the year within which I had a book deal to think about this and to write about it. But overall, I locate myself as a witness. I'm witnessing and also living these conditions that I'm writing about, and I'm trying to describe them as honestly 
and as vividly as I can, connecting them back, not as individual stories, but to something bigger that's going on in our country. Um, so you both have a prominent presence on social media. So we wanted to take a turn and kind of talk about your brands on social media. First, would you both define it as a brand? I mean, yeah, I guess in the traditional marketing definition of a brand, it is like a place where my personality gets uh, distilled, uh, to say, I guess, to pick that word. So, yeah, I guess I define it as a brand. I, I would, too. Um, you know, Vicky was talking about response to the question, like, do you kind of think about what you say? I think we all do. We're all curating, right? We're deciding what parts of ourselves we want to share with the public and what parts not to, which is the majority, by the way. I think one of the problems with social media is that it gives people a picture that is so select, but people tend to believe that what they're seeing is some kind of unfiltered, you know, channel to our brains, which it is not. It is highly curated. I do think of what my Twitter feed is as, in part, a brand. And that's mainly because, like, there's stuff I'm not going to say on Twitter. There's a lot of things I'm never going to say on Twitter. And I find myself characterized as being very outspoken, but I am outspoken within a range, right? I have a a spectrum of things that I want to talk about and a spectrum of points and ideas that I want to put across. But there's a whole universe of things that you will never hear me talk about on Twitter because it's none of your business. <laughs> Fair enough. And how does your use of social media impact your work? It's definitely a place where my work or the range of thinking I get to do gets to expand because I get to see and hear about it happening in other places and to other people and I have to think differently. I mean, working for a national newspaper like I did I couldn't just insist that that the way I was seeing it from Toronto was accurate and true, especially when there was often evidence from other places suggesting that it had deeper meanings or was more complicated or was actually functioning in the opposite direction. And so I find it really useful for that. It's like a place where I get to stretch my brain. And then there's also the like actual brand marketing piece of it, which is that it's a place where I get to share my work and insist that other people read it. I, I tend to agree with all of that. I joined Twitter, if I'm going to be really honest, for the jokes. And mm-hmm. nine years later, I am still mainly on Twitter for all of the laughs because <laughs> something I appreciate, for example, like following Vicky, is that you're talking about news, you're talking about current events, but it's engaging it's more candid than the formats and, and styles that we're confined to when we do a lot of mainstream journalism. It's more honest. Um, it's more off the cuff. When somebody expresses feelings about something that I find really important, but does so in a way that's funny or expresses like insecurities or fears uh, that we don't often see communicated in the mainstream, I find that to be very comforting because often maybe that's how I'm feeling about reading something. I definitely know that personally my Twitter feed is probably a great obstacle to my being successfully employed within mainstream media. I have never had a full-time job in the mainstream Canadian media. And I dare say that uh, you were talking about journalistic standards. The CBC reprimanded one of its CBC Manitoba employees because he had a take about Don Cherry being fired and kind of saying it's about time, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amar Khan is his name. They made him delete that tweet 
because it was extremely popular because it was shared and liked thousands of times. If it hadn't been shared and liked thousands of times, I bet CBC probably wouldn't have cared or wouldn't have found it. I also think that if Amar Khan had expressed some sympathy with Don Cherry, it also wouldn't have been such a big deal. That's something that I can never abide by. I can never play by those rules. And I think the fact that somebody like Don Cherry has been in the mainstream for 40 years, being the racist bigot that he is, tells me that some forms of freedom of expression and candid talk and telling it like it is are most welcome in the Canadian media landscape. But when I, as a black person, do it, it's out of bounds. Mm -hmm. But I am not going to conform as a result. If Don Cherry and Rex Murphy and Ed the Sock and all these other white male jock types get to have their fair opinion on and off social media while having gainful employment, I should be able to as well. And I'm not going to change that even though I see the resistance within the mainstream Canadian landscape. If Twitter is the place for me to get off those hot takes that nobody else wants, then that's the place. Um, And you had to kind of find a way to, I don't want to say bounce back, but like find a new path within your career. How did, did Twitter ever help you do that? When I left the Toronto Star, I wanted to tell everyone why. And the Toronto Star wasn't going to give me space in their newspaper to explain that. That's what social media has been able to do for me, is when I haven't been able to find that voice in the mainstream, it has helped me to find it around, essentially, those restrictions. Yeah, and, and Vicky, do, do you echo that? Yeah, I think a lot of what Desmond is saying is true in that there's, if you look at the media that Canadians still consume to its day, a lot of it remains traditional and legacy media. Which is why I think a lot of attention gets paid to what happens on Twitter, because it's often breaking past or ignoring a lot of the conventions of traditional and legacy media. And frankly, as black journalists, that's the only place we have to even attempt to pierce past sort of this wall, this shield that traditional media has created. Yeah. And and you you host your podcast, The Safe Space Podcast, and you launched Vocal Fry Studios. Was part of that... To, to create that space, essentially? I, I mean, well, with both of them, I at least knew enough of the landscape to know that I could not can only have things tied to these institutions. I knew by working at a newspaper, a layoff was coming in the next year or within the next 10. I knew that to be true. So the idea that I would only have these places, like hold my entire value of my work at these institutions that for both financial and deeply embedded institutional reasons, will end up devaluing that work. I just couldn't continue to do that. That said, the podcast Safe Space was born at Metro. Like, it was born very much within the walls of an institution. And how much of that show sounds the way it does is often because I was like, well, what, how's, what's the furthest I can possibly take this institution and allow them to, do, to let me do this and continue to pay me while I'm doing it? Safe Space is about having a political conversation that sounds different. It doesn't sound like CTV's power play or CBC's power in politics. Both shows I watch, but in no way reflect the political conversation I actually experience. And so that's what Safe Space is supposed to be for. I, w- I want to pick up on something you said too, Vicky, because I think that there's like a really important asymmetrical dynamic going on that you pointed out, which is that We watch these shows in legacy media really, really closely. We watch media 
that is not representative of us, representative of us as black people, as people of certain political persuasions. So I happen to identify as very, very, very left wing. And those perspectives are not on mainstream Canadian TV, radio, print, for the most part. Um, but I don't know if those people are reading my blog or listening to Vicky's podcast. Yeah. So they are excluding us from the mainstream, but I don't even think that they really understand what it is that we're talking about in the same way that we are studying and understanding and analyzing what they're doing. It's asymmetrical. I really would challenge people who are in the mainstream, like, do you actually know what else is going on out there and what's being said? I definitely think that because of notions of identity politics, there's this projecting of us and of our work that is like so far from what we're actually doing or talking about when the content is right there. Mm -hmm. You know, we're sitting in a J school right now. How in J schools can we better prepare students to sort of understand what this landscape really looks like? The most important thing as a starting point for students is the understanding that this is a corporate media environment that we're talking about in the main. If you want to go and start your own thing, if you want to be part of something independent, um, that's, that's, that's another story. But I, from everything that I see, the journalism school world understands media primarily through a corporate media lens and that means capitalism that means exploiting your labor in order to make a product whether your labor is fairly compensated or not whether your needs as a human being are taken care of or not journalism is not separate from the world that we're living in and so you will have to grapple with the realities of being a laborer and selling your labor often for far less than what it's worth. When we're out here grinding as freelancers, when we're talking about the need for unionization, when we're talking about the need for unions to actually stand up for workers when situations in the journalism workplace occur, those are things that everybody who wants to get into the industry needs to pay attention to. I don't like when I walk into journalism schools and I ask the students how much they think they're going to get paid when they first leave, how much they think a piece is worth, how much it's going to cost them to do a feature. I think a huge piece of demand needs to happen on the side of students, which is advocating for yourselves as workers and insisting that the institution tells you what the value of your labor is supposed to be. And also that they should be candid with you that many of you, especially if you are a non-white, non-male, that you will not be given that, that value, mm -hmm. that there is an appropriate value and there's what you will receive. And I think that that's, that needs to happen. I think there's sort of a gap between who's leading the institutions or who's teaching at them and the, and the lived reality students are going to walk into. I think all the time about MBA schools. They don't mess with this. They tell people how much money they should ask for. They tell you what contract should look like. They tell you what a signing bonus to walk away from is. And I asked journalism students, how much do you think a reported feature costs you and will get you? And they have no idea. And that's fourth year journalism students. And so that's a failure of the institution. But from within it, I think we just need to consistently be talking more about money. 
And I think we know that because often rounds of layoffs happen, as we're seeing today at Star Metro. And we don't know enough about why that is. We haven't gotten good as journalists at grappling with grappling with the business reality. And like Desmond says, like that is a conversation about capitalism we need to have. But I think as journalists, we need to start working out on the on the muscles of understanding what's happening in this industry, understanding why there's such a gap. For journalism students, it starts in the classroom. When a professor says, I want you to do a radio assignment, hey, what's the fair market value of this final piece? Needs to be the next question, or at least in that top five. Again, I think these are all sort of small when we know that there's a lot that's kind of broken within the institution, but I think it'll help everybody to feel like you've ad- advocated for yourself. Even if you don't get the results you want, advocating for yourself provides at least a sense of security that you did what was right at le- by you and hopefully that it works out for the greater values you have in the world. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Vicky and Desmond. It's been such an honor to have you here before our first Ryerson Review of Journalism event. So thank you. Thank you. So that's it for our podcast. Feel free to sound on Twitter if you'd like at Ryerson Review and on Instagram at The Ryerson Review. Our podcast was produced by myself, Ashley Fraser, and our guest producer for this week, Sean Young. Our podcast will be edited by our Pull Coats producer, Tanya Serek. Special thanks to technical help from Angela Glover and Lindsay Hannon, and our executive producer is Sonia Fatter. And thank you to our guests this week, Desmond Cole and Vicky Mochama. And if you liked our show today, please be sure to subscribe. See you next time. <laughs>